So we do thank you for your faithful giving, and of course we give for the glory of Jesus, for the furtherance of his kingdom at Willingdon and far beyond. So thank you for your faithfulness, for worshiping God in that way. We are in Romans chapters 9 through 11. The title of the series is Romans 9-1-1. We're again in Romans chapter 9 this morning, a very difficult text and uh, look forward to the way that God will speak to us as we read His Word. The title of today's message is, Can God Be God? And you might think, well, well, the answer to that question is obvious. But it's a really important question that we answer every day in the way that we live. So let's read the Word. Mark, come read Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Please stand as I read from the Word of God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, will you have, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel through the numbers of the sons of Israel, Be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Uh, let's pray. So, Father, we do thank you uh, for your presence among us by your Holy Spirit. And uh, we depend on you this morning to understand your word and then to know how to live in light of it. So we ask for that grace. Jesus, please be our teacher. Teach us as you taught your first disciples. May only your word remain with your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. <clears throat> so I have a grandson named Leon. He is now two years old. And uh, he thinks that he should rule the world. If his mother is putting on her jacket, 
he says, no, mommy, don't put on your jacket because mommy must stay at home and take care of him. If his mommy is eating, he says, no, mommy, don't eat because the food is for him. If his mommy wants to lie down, he says, no, mommy, don't lie down, get up because mommy should play with him. He's two years old. He believes that he should be able to control what his mother does and doesn't do. He wants to keep his mother in his box. Why? Because he thinks that life is about him. Leon's mother has so much more life experience, wisdom, knowledge than Leon, but he thinks that he should be able to turn things upside down and control her. If the distance between Leon and his mother is great, just imagine the distance between us and God. It is infinitely greater. So should we be permitted to turn things upside down? Should God humble himself and play according to our rules? Can we let God be God? In Romans chapter 9, you have, in a sense, the story of Israel retold. In verses 6 to 13, we looked at this last week, Paul refers to the patriarchs, the founders of the, the Israelite nation. And then in verses 14 to 18, he goes back to the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. And then in verses 19 to 29, he goes to the prophetic books and the exile and the remnant. So in a sense, he retells the story of Israel. And uh, if you want to become more familiar with this Old Testament story of the people of God, of the Old Test, uh, uh, people of Israel, then I'd really encourage you to take a course that'll be offered May 26 and 27. Uh, the professor is Ken Esau. He's an excellent professor, and you will be looking at the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Esther. Uh, I've taken this material. I'd love to take it again because it is just so engaging and fascinating, and it helps you understand what God is doing in history, in the Old Testament, New Testament, and today. So consider that. You can still sign up online. When, God retell, or sorry, when Paul retells this story in Romans chapter 9, he's focusing on God's sovereign choosing. At each stage in Israel's history, God is choosing a person or a group and not another. Last week, we saw that God chooses not on the basis of one's family or good works, but just on the basis of His divine will. And Paul's readers react immediately. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God chose Jacob and not Esau before they were born, with no consideration for their good or bad deeds, then isn't God unjust? It sounds so arbitrary, so random, so unfair. Paul, he rejects the idea in the strongest terms. He says, 
By no means. Absolutely not. If the answer that he gives to the question, it just doesn't flow logically from the question being asked. And most certainly it doesn't. Why? Because Paul's readers are asking the wrong question. Paul answers from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. It's in Romans 9:15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In the context of this quotation in the Old Testament, Israel has worshipped a golden calf, has committed spiritual adultery within three months of being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Three months. They've rebelled against God. And when Moses descends the mountain, he realizes this is a 911 moment. He is overcome with anger. He smashes the tablets, the very writing of God. Moses begins to intercede for the people of Israel. If God just decides to simply exercise his justice, the people of Israel deserve to be blotted out. Instead, God spares them. Mercy. God calls Moses back up the mountain. And Moses, he wants to be assured that God will remain with his people, that God will not remove his presence. And so he asks to see God's glory. And then in one of the fullest self-disclosures prior to Jesus, God says this to Moses. He reveals himself, and this is mercy. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. So God does punish sinners, but God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. For a second time, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. This is mercy not justice, mercy. The point is this. God is merciful. God is merciful. All deserve judgment. <laughs> but in His mercy, God restrains judgment. In His mercy, He does not give people what they deserve. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The way that God works to save people is based not on His justice, but on His mercy. What can we conclude? First, God's gracious revelation of Himself, whatever He has revealed about Himself to us, that depends on His merciful will toward us. It's never based on our human will or our striving not even on our 
most earnest and best efforts. And then secondly, God's gracious election of His people depends solely on His mercy. It never depends on our will, our effort, our exertion. It always is, always will be unconditional. Paul continues his argument by going to another Old Testament text in Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. We find it in Romans 9, 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, again, consider the context of this quotation. Prior to the exodus of Israel from Egypt, God has been revealing Himself to Israel and to Egypt through miracles. Instead of bowing to God's glory, to His power, Pharaoh wants to display His glory and His power by destroying Israel. God's people. It's important to note a number of things here. First of all, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's not just random. The quotation is taken from the seventh plague, the verse that Paul quotes. God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh has repeatedly hardened his own heart. Pharaoh had opportunities to repent. Dr. Leon Morris writes this, Neither here nor anywhere else in Scripture is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. Second, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that was a judicial act, <laughs> abandoning him to his rebellion. It's like Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes, that people who just refuse to acknowledge God to be God, despite all of the revelation in history and in nature, God gives those people over to their own depravity and all of its consequences. Third, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it was foreknown by God. We see this at the beginning of Exodus. After Pharaoh had repeatedly hardened his heart, God hardens his heart in order to reveal to all that there is no one like him. God is revealing himself not only to Israel and Egypt, but to the whole earth, the Scriptures say. God alone saves. So God in his action, in the hardening of Pharaoh, he is purposeful. God is merciful. God is purposeful. And in summary, we can say this. All human beings are sinful. All deserve judgment. If God hardens someone, it is what that person's sin deserves. If God is gracious to, towards someone, He is simply being merciful. All deserve condemnation. And it is simply astonishing that anyone is saved at all. F.F. F. Bruce, New Testament theologian, writes, God's grace is far wider than anyone could have dared to hope. But just because it is grace, no one is entitled to it. 
Now, our culture struggles with this because we believe that we are entitled to so many things. We would provide other reasons for Pharaoh's hardening. Our culture would say, well, Pharaoh, he was just a product of his time. <laughs> he was part of a, an unjust system, and that's why he was the way that he was. He must receive God's grace and be included as well. A church that I know has this vision statement, beheld, belong, believe. Beheld, belong, believe. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? They preach the gospel of our age, which is inclusion. Come to our community. You will be held. You will belong. Believe whatever you want. All people are welcome. All spiritualities are welcome as well. Now, if we read the Scriptures, the vision is, behold, believe, belong. Behold the Lord your God. Prostrate yourself before Him. Repent. Turn. Trust in God alone. Belong to His family. Do you notice the difference? Behold, God is the center of all things. He is the all in all. He is the only foundation. But our culture tells us, no, we're at the center. We're at the center. And we should tell God how He should act. And we should determine who's in and who isn't. We must all be included, no matter what we say, think, or do. It's all okay. I doubt that the church I'm referring to preaches from Romans 9. They would probably like the questions that Paul asks in the following verses. Verse 19 of Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God's gracious choosing depends solely on His will and mercy, and if God even uses our rebellion, human rebellion, to further His purposes, how can anyone be found guilty for anything? We can't resist His will. How can anyone be held responsible for their choices? Romans 9.20, this is the way Paul responds, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul says, who do you think you are? Does art talk back to the artist? Does a lump of clay talk back to the potter? Who are you to question your maker? Who are you to answer back to God? Paul draws on another Old Testament passage here, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. And in the context, Israel is rebelling against God, is quarreling with her creator. In fact, Israel is trying to reverse goal, roles with God. Israel wants to be the potter and wants to make God the pot. 
Isaiah chapter 29. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? In his argument here, Paul is not addressing those who come to God with good questions and want to find good answers to their difficult questions. He's not addressing those who are truly seeking truth. No, he is addressing those who are trying to reverse roles with God. That is, become the potter and make God the pot. And Paul's point is very simple. God has authority over the clay. He has authority over you and me. He can make a beautiful piece of artwork or he can make a potty. He is absolutely free. God is free. Perhaps it's important to to make another point here. Because we are creatures of the 21st century, because we so often are about us, we would love to have Paul's thoughts on human freedom here. Paul, what do you think about human freedom? And he doesn't even address it. He simply focuses on God's absolute freedom. He begins with who God is. Why? Because most of our problems are due to a vision of God that is off. It's twisted. It's distorted. And most often our vision of God is just far too small. The questions we're led to ask based on this passage, if I can go back to my introduction for a minute, should we be like Leon and tell God when to put the jacket on, when he should eat, when he should sit down or stand up? Why should we be able to limit God's freedom for our purposes? Do we really want a world where we can turn things upside down? Do we really want a world that's under our control, that operates according to our wisdom, to our justice, our standard of justice, our understanding of morality? Do we really want that? God is sovereign. He's absolutely free. At the beginning of this year, when my wife and I realized that my mother-in-law would return to our home, she'd been living with us for uh, three and a half years, spent six months with my wife's younger sister in North Carolina. In December, we realized that she would come back, so it's January, and and she arrives, and I, I confess, I'm a bit anxious. And one of the questions I'm asking God is, how long, Lord? My mother-in-law's dementia was progressing. Fraser Health said that she was in need of full care. And so I'm thinking, oh, if God, if she stays with us, that's going to limit my wife. It will impact all of us. How long, Lord? And as we prayed, the Lord encouraged Judy, encouraged me to just trust Him, that He was preparing the way. Amen. Along the way... Being rather impatient, (laughs) we explored different solutions. Well, how about another relative, or maybe my wife's older brother, or maybe a group home in Abbotsford, and 
No matter what we did, we just hit wall after wall after wall. And God kept assuring us as we prayed, He's in control. He'll take care of things. But why was it taking so long? Quite frankly, I was impatient. Two weeks ago, we received a phone call, unexpectedly. All of a sudden, Elam Village in Surrey called us. We have room for Etna. And when I think about the way that that phone call came, the timing of the phone call, the unity of our family around the decision. If I had time to tell you the whole story, I think you'd understand. But I saw God's sovereign hand in that moment. We can't imagine a better place for her to be right now. One of her greatest fears was that we would put her into a retirement village where she would be imprisoned. And the other day, Judy went to see her and said, hey, why don't we go to the mall? And she says, no, 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 let's stay here. I love it here. <laughs> go figure. But the point is this. I am so thankful that God is merciful and purposeful and free, sovereignly free. I'm not in control. Sometimes... Far too often, I want to be in control. I want to determine the timing. Paul continues in verses 22 to 24 with one very long question, and these are difficult verses to interpret. Let's read them. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God, who desires to exercise His judgment and thus show His divine power, exercises long-suffering, is patient with those deserving judgment? These verses here, they parallel verse 17 where Paul talks about Pharaoh. God did not destroy Pharaoh, but was patient with him and then used his hardened heart to display his glory for his purposes, his glory to the nations. The, the glory of God's mercy shone more brightly more splendidly, more magnificently against the terrifying, ter terrifying background of God's judgment on Egypt. In the physical realm right now, you know, a day like yesterday, <laughs> where it actually gets warm. <laughs> well, that warmth, that beauty of spring, that tenderness... We appreciate it so much more after a long, dark, harsh, cold winter, right? And for us in BC, a cold spring. <laughs> There's an interesting point to be made here. God is clearly identified in verses 22 to 24 as the one who prepares vessels of mercy for glory. 
No one is identified as having prepared vessels of wrath for destruction. And there are different interpretations here, but I will offer one. Who is responsible? Harrison and Hagner write, The preparation for destruction is the work of human beings who allow themselves to deteriorate in spite of knowledge and conscience. One Friday night, uh, it was 3 a.m., and I was not yet home. I was 16 years old. I had just received my driver's license. So when my father realized that I had not come home, he started to drive up and down Highway 1 looking for his son. He thought that I had crashed the car. The picture of God the Father in the New Testament is of a father who runs in the direction of his prodigal son, right? Lifts up his tunic and runs. Can't wait to have his son come home. So, being 16 and unwise, I got home just before breakfast. And I slipped in, sat down at the breakfast table, and thought that my parents hadn't noticed. How foolish was I? I hope I'm a bit wiser today. So I'm sitting there, and my father has tears running down his cheeks. My father did not cry very often. And interestingly, I hardened my heart. In fact, I remained hardened for years. What did I deserve? God's patience in this passage suggests that God is ready to receive people who repent. In fact, if you go back to Romans chapter 2, Paul writes that God's kindness leads us toward repentance. In Romans chapter 11, he says that God can remove the hardening of a heart. John Stott, pastor theologian, writes, although this does not solve the ultimate mystery why he prepares some people in advance for glory and allows others to prepare themselves for destruction, yet both revelations... Both are revelations of God, of His patience and wrath and judgment, and above all, of His glory and mercy in salvation. The question for the house churches of Rome here, the churches that Paul is writing to, is this. What if in the same way, just as he endured Pharaoh in the Old Testament, what if he is enduring unbelieving Jews in this generation for the revealing of His glorious salvation to both Jews and Gentiles? What if God is using hardened Israel to display His name and glory to all peoples? That's the question He expects them to ask. And you can hear the theological bombshell dropping, fragments flying in all directions because the Jews of Paul's day believed that the Gentiles were worthy of God's wrath, of judgment. And if, you know, people like us, Gentiles, non-Jews, were included in the family of God, well, we should definitely be in the minority, maybe on the margins. The majority should definitely be Jewish. 
They didn't want God to turn their world upside down. They wanted God to work within their box. And again, they would ask the question, well, is God being faithful to His Word? If this is the reality today, is God being faithful? Paul goes to Hosea, Old Testament prophet. And in this book of Hosea, Hosea is lamenting the spiritual adultery of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has gone after other gods. But the message in Hosea is that God will exercise mercy, that He will reverse the situation. He will turn the situation upside down. And then Paul takes that which is revealed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and applies it to the Gentiles of his day. Look at Romans 9.25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And the apostle Peter also takes Hosea and applies it to the New Testament church that includes Gentiles. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you were a chosen race. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. So Gentiles like us are now sons and daughters of the living God. And that is God's mercy. We are fully included in God's people. We no longer follow our dead idols. We follow the living God. What a wonder. What a marvelous reversal of destiny. And then in verses 27 to 29, Paul draws on Isaiah, and he talks about the Jewish remnant that is in the church. He goes back to a passage in Isaiah where the southern kingdom Judah has committed spiritual adultery. And Assyria has invaded, the land lies desolate, there are only a few survivors Chapter 9, verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And then he goes to another Old Testament passage in the last verses of Romans 9, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. And there it's prophesied that only a remnant will remain. Israel deserves to be wiped out completely. It should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> but God in His mercy will spare some. So in summary, God's Word has not failed. God is faithful. He always is. He had promised a Jewish remnant. And that was the reality being experienced in the New Testament church. The fact that there was a Jewish remnant was God's mercy. If he had been just. You see, God's elective purposes never were for Israel alone. They were always meant to be extended to all nations. And today what we have in the church is one people, Jews and Gentiles together, the new Israel. But God in His goodness, according to Romans 11, is not done with ethnic Israel yet. 
Jesus foretold this reality, Matthew chapter 8. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In God's saving purposes, he is always merciful, he is purposeful, he is free, and he is faithful. God is God. And he always acts consistently within his character. We can trust him. If we are saved, it is due to his wisdom, his power, his mercy, his gracious initiative. If we are saved, he deserves all the glory. All of it. We should really not try to turn things upside down. We do not want a world where humans have full reign. What we should be pleading for is for God to turn things upside down. That is, exercise His mercy to those who are hopelessly lost. At 16, I was hopelessly lost. I remained hardened for years. I finished high school at 17. As soon as I finished high school, I was gone. And my father shed tears again. I have images of my parents in my mind. See, my mother had four boys. We were a burden, believe me. (laughs) But I have uh, images in my mind of my mother and father kneeling beside the bed and praying. Crying out to God for us. And God, in his infinite mercy, called me to himself. He graciously gave me opportunities to repent, opportunities that I never deserved. And thankfully, by his gracious work at me, in me, one day I surrendered to him. God was so merciful toward me. If he had simply been just, You see, I certainly don't deserve to be here today, and I certainly do not deserve to be a follower of Jesus. It is all God's grace. John Stott writes, Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. So I pray that I have left some loose ends. (laughs) Truly God's ways are inscrutable. His wisdom unfathomable. God is God. We're not. And if we figure out divine sovereignty and human responsibility and put them into a neat and tidy doctrine, we have probably gone beyond what God has revealed. Can we allow for mystery? Can we let God be God? We really don't want a God who is so small that he fits into our box. And if we are followers of Jesus, let's remember this. It is only by God's grace and his infinite mercy. None of us deserve to be here 
or to be followers of Jesus or to be called sons and daughters of God today. Amen. 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 Let's stand. And we're going to uh, go into a time of reflection and prayer. So there will be some questions up on the screen. And I'm going to invite pastors and elders to come forward at this time. Um, So you can stay where you are and pray and thank God and worship. Uh, Or if you would like, you can come forward for prayer. So maybe you too are struggling with God's sovereignty today, with letting God be God. Uh, Maybe you're in a place where you just want to surrender all that you're experiencing to God. I'd encourage you to respond in the way that God is inviting you to respond, okay? And as you pray, the music will play, and then we'll go into a time of worship. Let's pray. if you would like someone to pray with you. These um, amazing people will be up at the front and they would love to intercede for you. But in